Welcome to 76 West, the podcast of the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan, featuring talks from the JCC's Conversation Series, a marquee program of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas. This podcast is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. Today we'll be listening to a discussion with Roz Chast, who, since joining the New Yorker in 1978, has established herself as one of the greatest chroniclers of the anxieties, superstitions, furies, and insecurities of modern life. She is the author and illustrator of more than a dozen books. Chast is interviewed by Rabbi David Ingber, founder and spiritual leader of Romamu in New York City, who is named one of the 50 most influential rabbis in the United States by The Forward. In this conversation, Chast references her best-selling book, Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant, which chronicles her relationship with her aging parents as they shift from independence to dependence. While you don't need the book to follow what Chast is referencing here, you can view some of her cartoons by searching the title on books.google.com. The talk was recorded in front of a live audience on October 29, 2018. It was co-sponsored by What Matters, Caring Conversations About End of Life, as part of Reimagine End of Life, a citywide exploration of death and celebration of life through creativity and conversation. Good evening, everyone. Hi. It's a pleasure to be with all of you, and it's a distinct pleasure and a distinct honor, given all of the things that have been happening over the last couple of days, to be able to gather together again in community, especially to be able to face directly some of the things that generally we prefer not to face. And so it's really, uh, it's really wonderful to be able to meet you, Raz, and to, to sit with you, and as we said in the back, to schmooze. Shoes. Just to have a schmooze. It's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. And one of the things that, that I said to you when I, when I met you and that we discussed a little bit of it was, you know, uh, one of the most profoundly important things about reading your book and about what you're doing with this book and what's happening to reimagine. And by the way, let me begin also, let me go back a little bit to say thank you as well to Rabbi Joy Levitt and to, to Sally Kaplan and to Megan Whitman and to Brian Fink and to Susie Kessler and to all of those and Jeannie Blaustein, to all of those who brought this together tonight. But what's happening through Reimagine is a willingness to talk about things that we generally would like to avoid, either because they're not nice or, or, or unpleasant. And one of the ways that, we, that you use to, to talk about difficult things is, of course, your incredibly insightful sense of humor and how you bring humor to situations that, are, uh, that many might not find funny. Um, yeah, I guess that's that's possibly true. Um, I mean, humor does a lot of things. I think it's, you know, it's probably a little bit of a defense. It's uh, it's also um, a way to sort of, sometimes I think of it visually, I think of like letting a little bit of the air out of the tires of things, sort of. Um, I don't know, it's a way to cope with sort of the unbearable situation of, actually, you know, from the time you're four or five years old, you know, like, oh, I guess if my goldfish died, you know, that means I'm going to die. Like, oh, well, uh, what's the point then? You know, uh, so, you know. So from goldfish to existential, you yeah, know. Yeah, it's A to B to C. I mean, it's at least, clear. To, you know. So, yeah, it's a way to sort of deal with that, maybe, I think. And, and also to, to to deal with, but also to allow it to, to come out to some degree. Like when we when we look at yeah. those things through humor, it's not just a defense, but it's also a way of of taking a bitter pill of medicine in a way, in a, in a sweeter way. Yeah. Well, I think I mean, when I was a kid, I remember very clearly, uh, you know, discovering Charles Adams, and there was something that was so dark and so hilarious, and you know, I did I didn't know why at the time I loved his stuff so much, but I think it was that he was expressing some very dark things, but in a very funny way. And I responded to that, so. <laughs> so you have some uh, some slides that you'd like to, to take yeah, us through? Yeah, I think uh, before we get into the book, I'm gonna show just some cartoons. Um, <laughs> and uh, this is self-help books for the newly dead. Um, five people you should avoid in heaven. Um, eating for eternity and who moved my urn? <laughs> uh, and uh, this is uh, inside of body experience. Um, uh, once again, here I am. 
feel this way every morning. Um, and uh, I guess that brings us to uh, almost to the part where we're going to talk about the book a little bit. This is me and my parents. Um, I'm about six years old. I look like a kind of relatively happy camper, although I really have no idea why. Um, my my parents were um, this is they were very serious people. They were a lot older when they had me. Um, it, this picture makes me laugh a little bit because, you know, to most of the world, it was around 1960. To my parents, it was, I think, 1938. Um, this is how they dressed when they went to the beach. Uh, and, uh, you know, I must have had a little bit of resilience as a child because, uh, you know, a mere uh, five years later, no, I'm not 40 in this picture. I'm, um, I'm 11. Um, and, uh, you know, it's like, I do not know the ways of your country. Um, I think I put this on head in case I do not want cold air going in ear. Um, so, yeah, so. <laughs> cold air going in your ear, uh, no, that, was a, it was a, that is not good. Not good. Not good. You definitely don't want cold yeah. air in your ear. Yeah, yeah, or, or water. Or, or, right. Anything, anything. anything. Those, that's in like, your ears. Stay. Yeah, it goes right from your ear to your brain to dead. Exactly. You know, so uh, um, should I read this slide here? Uh, this is okay. Yeah, it's okay. the wheel. Of, okay, yeah. this is the wheel of doom. This is pretty much um, how <laughs> I grew up, uh, um, and these were all stories that I heard growing up. Uh, friend's husband killed by falling flower pot. Friend nearly blinded by mascara causing infection. Friend who traveled too much, jaundice. Uh, a rash than dead. A headache than dead. A lump than dead. He was too happy. He jumped off the chair and broke his metatarsal. Uh, friend's son killed by baseball. Um, it, there are so many things that could go wrong at any minute. As I said, getting too much cold air in your ear, water in your ear. My father, if he saw somebody like drinking water that had ice cubes in it, it almost like gave him like terror, like he was shooting up with heroin or something. Uh, choking, uh, gangrene. I remember once, I found this like watch, uh, one of those Spidel kind of watches on the ground. I was a kid and I put it on. My mother said, take that off, it's too tight. Your hand will turn green and drop off. Um, also, I was not allowed to sit directly on the ground. And the reason for this is because my mother had a friend growing up who sat directly on the ground. She caught a cold in her kidneys. Oh my God. And she died. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she did. So um, I, I was very, you know, afraid to be like, you know, Roz, what's wrong? Why don't you sit down? No, no, it's okay. Um, <laughs> laughing during a meal, every, everything could just end in a horrible disaster. And yet, you know, my parents and I, we, they never, my, we never discussed death. Uh, and um, this is sort of the conversation that I opened my book with. It's uh, me and my parents, and uh, they're probably in their late 80s at this point, and they're still living independently, and I'm saying, you know, so do you guys ever uh, think about things? What kinds of things? You know, things, plans. I have no idea what you guys want. Let's say something happened. Am I the only sane person here? You know what? Forget it. Never mind. Que sera, sera. Later that day, phew, phew, phew. Um, I was quite aware that my parents had had tough lives, way, way tougher than mine. I had heard the stories my whole life about how their parents had come over from Russia at the turn of the century with nothing, about how my maternal grandfather had been an engineer in Russia, but how between his inability to speak English and his being Jewish, he wound up barely being able to support five kids working as a presser in the garment district, and how bitter and angry he was, and how my grandmother washed clothes for other people, and how even sadder my father's family was. His mother was one of nine children. Not only was she the only girl, but she was also the only one of her siblings to survive the Russian cholera epidemic. Then in a forest, her father had his throat cut from ear to ear by bandits. 
I don't know what happened to her mother, but she came to New York, married my paternal grandfather, and had just one child, my father, by cesarean section in 1912. A horrible ordeal that involved, according to my mother, opening her up from her neck to her you-know-what. It's like stuffing a turkey, you know. Between their one bad thing after another lives and the Depression, World War II, and the Holocaust in which they both lost family, it was amazing that they weren't crazier than they were. Who could blame them for not wanting to talk about death? And here's my father saying, let's discuss a more pleasant subject, which is you know, where the title of this book came from. Uh, my parents referred to each other without any irony as soulmates. This is when I thought my mother's favorite expressions was the rocks in his head match the holes in mine. <laughs> They were born 11 days apart, and they grew up two blocks apart in East Harlem, New York City. They were in the same fifth grade class. He was a fat boy in the back of the room. They never dated, much less anything else, anyone besides each other. And my father says, we were too poor. I'm like, what? Um... Aside from World War II, work, illness, and going to the bathroom, they did everything together. I'm going to Wallbaum's. Hold on, I'm coming too. My mother even washed my father's hair for him. It's not as if they never fought, because they did. Don't sit sideways, you're twisting your kishkas. (laughs) My father had this habit, I can still picture him in the kitchen, he would sort of sit in this like, Sideways, uh, she hated that, oh my God. But the concept of looking for something better or being happy, that was for modern people, uh, movie stars or degenerates. Um, They were a tight little unit. Codependent, of course we're codependent, thank God. Maybe they believed if they really held on to each other for eternity, nothing would ever change. So. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I don't know whether I should continue or whether we should talk for. Should I continue? All right. All right. All right. All right. I Thank you. All right. <laughs> I, I do what I'm told. All right. Um, I visited them for the first time in years at their apartment in Brooklyn where I grew up. What I noticed first was the level of grime. What is grime? It's not ordinary dust or a greasy stovetop that hasn't been cleaned in a week or two. It's more of a coating. It's something that happens when people haven't cleaned in a really long time. One thing my mother always told me when I was growing up was, you have to dust. If you don't, the dust gets into all the interstices of the furniture and it breaks it all apart. It was clear that she had stopped worrying about that. But what do you do if you pick up a sponge and start cleaning? Look at me, it's perfect, daughter. It will not necessarily be perceived as helpful. The person you're trying to help might even feel insulted or embarrassed. Put that down, leave that alone, don't touch that. Daddy and I are fine. Don't upset your mother. I wasn't great as a caretaker and they weren't great at being taken care of. This is a sort of typical conversation I had with them and I should say here two things. Um, At a certain point, I had moved out of New York when I had uh, my second child. I was living in Brooklyn when we had one kid. When we had two children, uh, we moved out to uh, a little town in Connecticut about an hour and 15 minutes away north of New York and, you know, kind of a ways away from Brooklyn. Um, But I talked to them a lot on the phone. Oh, and the other thing is that my father never learned how to drive. He was too anxious. So my mother did all the driving. Anyway, um, so we had these kind of conversations a lot. Um, And I say to my mother, how's your cataract removal operation recovery coming along? And she goes, great. It's like there was a yellow scrim over everything and now it's gone. I still have the patch over the eye though, but not to worry. There's plenty of food in the house. Daddy and I just got back from Waldbaum's. (laughs) And I'm thinking, Waldbaum's, their house, Ocean Parkway, you know, I don't know if any of you guys know Ocean Parkway. It's not a little street. It's a, it's, a, it's a rather large, six-lane kind of business. Mom, listen to me. You can't drive with one eye. You have no depth perception. <laughs> Not a problem. Daddy guided me. Um, this is another sort of conversation from that same era. Mom, what is with this oven mitt? It's from the year one. It's disgusting. It's all burnt, and it's cruddy, and it's got patches on it. And then I noticed something about the patches. Oh, my God. 
These patches come from a skirt <laughs> I made 40 years ago in Home Ec. Please let me buy you a new oven mitt. Why waste your money? That one still works. So by 2002, they were 90. It was hard not to notice that every time I came to see them, the grime had grown thicker, the piles of newspapers, magazines, and junk mail had grown larger, and they themselves had grown frailer. I could see that they were slowly leaving the sphere of TV commercial old age. This is like these ads, you know, for Centrum Silver. It's like, it's so ridiculous. It's like this guy, he's like maybe 70, he's in great health, he's got silver hair, okay. He's kayaking, you know, this is like, um, this is not what I'm talking about. And moving into that part of old age that was scarier, harder to talk about, and not a part of this culture. And here's this moron saying, extend human lifespan to 140. Uh, something was coming down the pike. It's no accident that most consumer ads are pitched to people in their 20s and 30s. For one thing, they are less likely to have gone through the transformative process of cleaning out their deceased parents' stuff. Once you go through that, you can never look at your stuff the same way. You start looking, looking at your stuff a little post-mortemistically. <laughs> if you've lived more than two decades as a consumer, you probably have quite the accumulation, even if you're not a hoarder. An ergonomic garlic press and throw pillows and those stupid sunflower dessert plates and seven travel alarm clocks and eight nail clippers and a colander and a flat iron and three old laptops and barbells and a set of fucking bocce balls and patio furniture and auto harp for God's sake and your old flute from high school and a zillion books and towels and sheets and a wok you never used. And my mother had a very you know, interesting idea about doctors and medicine. I mean, she was a little bit of a, a Dr. Monkey herself, you know, as evidenced by the Merck manual, but she still had a sort of attitude about doctors, which was doctors, they have a God complex. They tell you to do something, then a month later, it's never do that thing. Some people think doctors walk on water, but not me. This is a little dig at her sister, who's a registered nurse. And hospitals, don't get me started. Here's what I think about hospitals. That's where you go to die. The body wants to be well. I'm a Jewish Christian scientist. <laughs> well, a long story short, at some point, this, this attitude was really good until it wasn't. Uh, when she was around 92, maybe 93, she was taken to Maimonides Hospital uh, with an attack of diverticulitis, which landed her in the hospital for a couple of weeks. And my father, who was more senile than I knew, uh, uh, his symptoms were much, pretty much masked whenever he was with my mother. She kind of made it all normal, you know. Uh, when she was not in the picture, he was much more uh, gone than, than I knew. And so when she was in the hospital the first night, I slept over in their apartment. I opened up the couch in the living room. My father comes in in the morning, and he goes, where's mom? And I tell him, mom's in Maimonides Hospital. And he goes, what? And, and it was this kind of awful thing, but I was thinking like, I mean, this scene repeated itself almost every day, if not like a few times a day. Um, but I kept thinking like, well, maybe it's okay because it's like he's forgetting in between and he thinks everything's normal. You know, I, I just have no idea. Um, but there were some funny things that happened when my dad was staying with us um, when my mom was in the hospital. He hadn't been shopping in such a long time that... Um, he didn't know that now, like in the men's department, in the underwear department in the store, um, men were like half naked and also they were like had worked out like a whole ton. So we're in the department at Kohl's and he goes, look at that ad. It looks, because his, his clothes were so, they were like rags, you know, because they hadn't gone shopping so long and it's not like they had Amazon Prime, you know. Um, and uh, he, he looks at the ad and he goes, look at that ad. It looks like those men have breasts. Um, and then later, in that same store, I held up this sweater. I said, Dad, what do you think of this sweater? I can't wear that. Why not? <laughs> it's red. Communism. <laughs> and, and I still, to this day, have no idea whether this was some kind of, like, Mishagas, you know, on his part, or whether this was a real, like, thing in the 50s where if you wore red, it was like a, a secret, not very secret, but like a, you know, I would imagine that you would want to hide it a right, little bit more. Right. Like, uh, uh, but anyway, um, she did get out of the hospital and then 
we started to move into a different chapter of this whole story. Um, and I tried to have conversations with them a little bit, but um, before, besides their aversion to talking about unpleasant topics, they also had trust issues. Remember the Melmans? Before they died, they signed all their money over to their daughter, and their daughter is going, yeah, thanks. Next thing you know, she puts them in a nursing home. Off you go. And she buys a drawer full of cashmere sweaters. <laughs> I tried to get them to accept a little bit of help from the outside, but they didn't want any strangers in the apartment. My mother insisted that no grocery store in Brooklyn delivered. Occasionally, one of their neighbors helped out, but the grime and disorder were worse than anything, uh, anything a mere tidying up could fix. And you can't probably read it from back there, but I'll tell you what I'm staring at. It's an ancient dust-covered box of sanitary napkins and I knew from the graphics on the box that they predated the time from when I myself became a woman. And like why they were still in the closet. I don't know whether she was planning on making like beds for Barbie out of them or, or stuffing a pillow. I have no idea why they were still there. And a friend of mine said, a friend of mine told me when I was describing this, he said, you have found the source of the river eBay. <laughs> uh, but anytime I mentioned assisted living, the reaction was extremely negative. And these places have these names, Sunset Gardens, End of the Trail Acres, uh, Final Bridge Resting Home. Somehow they were able to see through the euphemisms. Uh, and finally they were there. And uh, yes, so these various things happened, and uh, I did get them to a nursing home, uh, an assisted living place um, that was about a 10-minute drive from me. Um, and my father at that point, I think he was 93 or, no, they were both. They were both, I think, about 93 or 90, no, 94, 93 or 94. Uh, so what do they call this place, a rest home? No, Dad. It's called assisted living and then there are these posters on the wall as we walk in. And I swear to God, they were so creepy, but I'm trying to put a brave face on it. Don't forget the trip to the mall. Uh, Jitney leaves the lobby at 1 p.m. And then this one just killed me. And I swear, you know, on my kids' lives, this, is, this was real. Tonight's dining room theme is outer space. <laughs> and, and this is like... This is not for the Alzheimer's wing. This is like just <laughs> for regular people like us who just maybe like would need a little help showering or getting dressed or something. Uh, but it, the infantilization was just so beyond. Alfonso the Amazing does his magic act. Um, and I'm, I'm saying these things, look, they have a craft center. My mother is thinking, my daughter equals nitwit. Um, <laughs> And look, there's a gym and a little bar if you want to get a drink before dinner and bingo all day long. Have never been to a gym, don't drink, don't play bingo. Um, and my mother says, I'm getting fatigued, let's go back to our room. The first few months were fairly uneventful, although sometimes I had the feeling that my dad was less than 100% enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it wasn't a hellhole, but even a top of the middle of the line or bottom of the top of the line place is still an institution, and institu institutions have rules. Um, and this woman is telling me at the weekly staff assessment, and your father doesn't like to bathe. My mother never called it a hellhole, but she had opinions. We're not residents, we're inmates. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't easy, but they were adjusting. Your father had an egg in his pocket all day. Thank God it turned out to be hard-boiled. <laughs> I always made sure their door had decor, Indian corn, flowers, things like that. No wreaths, one has limits. Door decor was not an important part of my parents' old lives. And my father very wisely and sensibly says, why would anyone want to call attention to their door? Um, you know, I mean, I'm sure what they were imagining was like the, the burglar is comes up in the elevator. <laughs> he like looks down the hall. Uh -huh. He sees like no door except my parents has Indian corn on. And it's like, they're so rich. They're like leaving Indian corn. Anybody could come take it. <laughs> there must be treasures inside. 
So who you know, that? Who, who would waste? Who you know, would waste that on a, who would on a waste door? that on a door? You know, so uh, you know, but when in Rome, so I got them the Indian corn or whatever. I didn't want the other residents to think that they were weird or anti-door decor. <laughs> and uh, and here's two other older lady residents at the place. I heard the chests are from New York. <laughs> 76 West is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. In 1934, Lewis and Lillian Zabar opened a shop along Broadway at 80th Street on New York's Upper West Side. Lewis was a stickler for quality, roasting his own coffee and personally visiting smokehouses to sample and inspect fish, rejecting far more than he accepted. Today, Lewis's principles and practices continue to guide Zabar's. Respect the customer. Never, ever stint on quality. Offer fair value. And last but not least, keep searching for the new and wonderful. Be sure to visit Zabar's store on 80th and Broadway, or visit zabars.com for mouth-watering specialties like bagels, babka, rugelach, smoked fish, and of course, world-famous caviar. Zabar's ships to all 48 contiguous United States plus Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico. So there's no reason your friends can't enjoy the fresh, homemade taste of Zabar's any day of the week. Um, and uh, anyway, my father broke his hip. Um, and uh, at the end of he was 95. At the end of July, my father told my mother that he wanted to pack it in. He was tired of the work of staying alive and tired of, of his excruciatingly painful bed sores. My mother did not care for his defeatist attitude. I told daddy he was coming with me to 100 if I had to drag him kicking and screaming. He entered hospice, which my mother didn't particularly approve of either. So the hospice lady has started coming around. She's very nice, but I don't want anybody coming around here with a long, sad face. I want positive thinking, not a bunch of people standing around singing Kumbaya. <laughs> well, my father, my father did pass away. He did pack it in. Um, and uh, my mother lived another couple of years. She lived till she was 97. And those were very rough years. Uh, here's what I used to think happened at the end. Um, back in my younger years. One day, old Mrs. McGillicuddy felt unwell and she took to her bed. She stayed there for oh, about three or four weeks, growing weaker day by day. One night, she developed something called a death rattle. And soon after that, she died. The end, rest in peace, old Mrs. McGillicuddy. Um, what, I, what I was to learn was that it may happen for some people like that. You know, other people, an anvil drops out of the sky on their head or a safe, as it does in cartoons all the time, or piano. Um, and for other people, the end might be much more, you know, prolonged and uh, a lot of ups and downs. My mother was in hospice twice, actually. Um, it, it, it was rough. Um, but there were some interesting things, you know. I was privy to aspects of this part of life that I knew nothing, nothing, nothing about, because it's not in any book I'd ever read or any movie I had ever seen, nothing. Um, and my mother remained pretty much compass mentis until the end, but there were weird things that ha would happen towards the end where she would suddenly launch into like a weird story. Um, and I started writing them down and I gave them titles, like this one is called Dead Dad. <laughs> She'd be talking about something totally rational, like asking me like how my kids were doing in school or you know, how my husband was or you know, politics or whatever. And then she'd say, your father died before you were born, when I was pregnant with you. My father, Harry, said he would buy me a house and he would live with us and babysit you while I was at work. Mom, that's not true. Yes, it is, and I should know. <laughs> this one's called Ass Full of Buckshot. There was a break-in at the place. All the men were moved over to the women's side. I shot the intruder with my BB gun. I gave him an ass full of buckshot. <laughs> I'd like to stand him on a stage, pull down his pants, and take out the pullet, pellets one by one in front of everybody. Unusual adoption. Did I ever tell you about how the Miltons got Paula? I, I had heard it. I had never heard this version. Um, they went out shopping, and when they got back to their car, there was a grocery bag leaning against the wheel, and inside the bag was a baby. 
Trippy. I was on a launch. She'd never said launch to me in her life. You know, where did that come from? I was on a launch. And a woman who was naked down to her pubic got stabbed in the heart by a flying swordfish. <laughs> a terrible way to die. Maybe you dreamed it. No, I was right there. Of all the stories, I like this one the best. When you were around four, Daddy and I took you to see Uncle Tom's cabin at Brooklyn College. When Simon Legree was whipping old Uncle Tom, you jumped out of your seat. You ran to the stage and yelled at him to stop hurting Uncle Tom. You said, you're a bad, bad man. And then you took away his whip. You almost ruined the play. <laughs> and then we move to another part of this whole story uh, where, um, and this was in July of 2009, where my mother, the story stopped. And she slept most of the time. Uh, she was in hospice, and she was subsisting on Insure and ginger ale. And at this point, I mean, actually for the entire year and a half or so before I had hired, in addition to being at Richfield Crossings, she also had a round-the-clock uh, nurse to be with her um, so that she would never be alone. Um, and if anything happened, you know, she would have somebody right there. Uh, so, but there was, there was no more communication. Um, and I would go, and I did not know what else to do, so I, I drew her. Um, and this is in August. Uh, her facial expressions, you know, would change. Um, And uh, then at the end of September, uh, she passed away. Um, uh, now, th there's, a, there's a story that is an epilogue that's not in the book um, that happened a few years after, a couple of years, because the book came out in 2014, and it was probably around 2017 this happened. Um, I have a website. And I can, you know, just get email from anybody. Um, and uh, about a year and a half ago, I received an email from a woman who had read a book I wrote about my, my parents. Dear Ross Chast, I read, this is a stranger. I read your book, blah, 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 blah. But there was a mystery that needed to be solved. She reassured me that she wasn't bats, that she was merely curious about where my parents' first baby was buried. Um, now, I should say, and I mentioned this in the book, my parents had a baby before me that, uh, way before me, um, 12 years before me, that died uh, shortly after birth. Um, her cur curiosity, my, mother, my parents would not talk about this. I mean, I heard about it just a few times, but they did not want to talk about it or answer any questions about it. Um, her curiosity led her to a website called Find a Grave, which is real, where she discovered something she thought I might find interesting. Chast, female, died December 21st, 1942, buried Mount Lebanon Cemetery in Queens, Hebrew Cemetery. I did find it interesting. It was more information than I was able to get from my parents. So I contacted Mount Lebanon, you know, contact button, dear sirs or madams, blah, 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 archives, George Elizabeth Chast. The next day, I received this message. Dear Roz, I believe you have found your sister. I was beyond flabbergasted. Not only had my sister turned up in the archives, but so had my mother's parents. This was all news to me. The man at the cemetery sent me photographs of their graves. My parents' ashes, which had been in my closet since their deaths in 2007 and 2009, had at last found a home. Several months passed. After all, there was no rush. Seriously. Um, uh, finally, last fall, my son and I took a subway and then a bus to Glendale, Queens, where Mount Lebanon Cemetery is. I didn't bring the cremains. It was a two-part process, and this part was mainly for paperwork. We met with a man who had found my sister and my grandparents. He showed us a book of archived cemetery maps in the precise place where my sister was buried. He took us to her gravesite, which was unmarked, common in the case of an infant's death. My son and I put stones on her graves, grave. And as, as you know, Jews don't put flowers on graves, just stones. He showed us the niche wall where my parents' remains would be housed. Uh, it overlooks where your sister is buried. There's only one left in that wall. He had you know, chosen it with some care. It's niche J2. 
J2, the apartment where my parents had lived for almost 50 years where I grew up was 2J. The other day I returned to Mount Lebanon, this time with a pal and my parents' cremains. As you can see, I'm on the subway platform. Um, I was tempted to say to my fellow L-trained passengers, guess what or who is in this bag? <laughs> a workman drove me out to the niche wall. I carried the bag on my lap. We were joined by a group of workmen at the wall. One of them climbed a ladder, opened the niche, and one by one placed my parents' ashes inside. Then he resealed it and climbed back down. It was time to say goodbye. Um, so I'm going to close out with just a few cartoons and a couple of little things, um, just so we won't all be like, you know, hanging ourselves. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, Nancy Drew Mysteries, The Lady Years. This is Nancy Drew and the Missing House Keys. Um, uh, I know I left them right there. Uh, Nancy Drew and the Mystery of the Eight Pounds. How did I gain eight pounds? I eat nothing. Nancy Drew and the Secret of the Computer. You and I are going to be great friends. Um, and this is, uh, I get into like these weird hobbies. This is my father. This is a, a large, I got into rug hooking. Uh, and it's not latch hook rug. Uh, it's something called primitive rug hooking. You push these little like loops of, uh, of strips of wool through burlap. And this one is about four by five feet. And my father used to have these crazy breakfast brunches. He would take everything out of the refrigerator and sort of <laughs> array it on the table and would make my mother bananas, you know, because she would say, George, you take it out, then you put it back in the refrigerator. But he would, he wanted it all like arrayed in front of him. He just liked that. So that's what this is. It's gefilte fish and grapefruit and you know, prunes and borscht and bananas and locks and everything, you know, and shav of God. The shav was shav. so so disgusting. Shav. And he would put, he would put the shav, you know, it looks like mucus. Yeah. I mean, it's disgusting. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. And he, I was always, it was like, I'm, I was afraid to taste it, you yeah. know? Uh, still. And still, I'm still yeah, afraid to taste it. Like, terrifying. and he would put sour cream in it and like swirl the sour cream around. It really looked very mucosal. <laughs> very unpleasant. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and this is uh, something from uh, uh, last year. I, I've gotten also very much into um, embroidering, hand embroidering. And it's m one of my very favorite, favorite quotes ever. Uh, it's from the, the Polish poet, uh, I, I'm sure I'm botching his name pronunciation, Czesław Milo Milosz. Uh, uh, when a writer is born into a family, the family is finished. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, kind of true. Um, and uh, this cartoon. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, that's it. Uh, um, so, <laughs> thanks. All right, now, now we can chat. All right. Wow. So, to, I guess to go back, you know, many frames, just to, yeah. to this, you know, there's a story in um, just where my rabbi yarmulke for a moment. So just there's a story in, in this last week's Torah portion about uh, this almost killing of Isaac, right? So it's a pretty heavy story, not too much humor in there. And even though Isaac's name, of course, means humor, his name means he will laugh. Okay. And so you, the unique feature, one of the unique features of being a human being is the ability to laugh, right? So like, you know, when two incongruous things, you know, happen, yeah. like, you know, the end is near, you wish, you know, yeah. that's... So Isaac's uh, almost death, actually, in the minds of the rabbis, actually, they, they paint a picture of an almost death, and then this news that gets brought back to his mother. And in the rabbinic imagination, Satan, or a number of different versions, someone comes to the door, knocks on the door, and says to Sarah, your son, your only son, your son Isaac almost died almost. Uh -huh. And in the space between the word died and almost, she dies. Heavy, right? Yeah. So, so, so what, what people make of that often is that the world is, is contingent. There's a lot of like, whole, you know, the wheel of doom. Like, yeah. you know, you yeah. could be playing the oboe and, you know, right. or an anvil or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah. And, and like so one of these lights. Like it, just... could, like it could be. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the microphone, I could eat it. Okay? You never, yeah, yeah. Something happened. So you, you, you have these two images, this wheel of doom, and then right next to it, our parents, my parents never talked about death. Yeah. And so you were swimming in contingency in the fear of like leaving the house of like, who knows what could happen? I could blow my yeah. nose and my brains will come. Like, who yes. knows? Yes, yes. And, and at the same time, it was everywhere. 
Yeah. It was never spoken about. So, so do you speak about it to your kids? Do you, have you had this conversation with your kids? What would, if we were to like, you know, come to your house, zoom in, you have your kids. Did you sit them down and talk to them about death and about what would happen when you got older? Um, no, not, (laughs) um, although we talk of sort of about things that have a little bit to do with that. Some, I think in general, it's, it's not just this one topic. It's like, and I think this was a, a generational thing. My parents and I really didn't talk about very much at all, uh, anything that was sort of, uh, internal or, sort of deep or it just wasn't part of their what they thought that I don't know whether they talked about it with each other or uh, you know my mother my mother's philosophy was pretty much suck it up you know and uh, you know what are you complaining about? I'll give you so you know you uh, stop oh, actually her I one thing I heard very often from her was stop staring at your navel you know, and so I think that was, it was partly her personality and partly gen, uh, her generation, you know, so we're much more, uh, I don't know, self-reflective where we want to talk about this stuff, you know. That's one of the most poignant, a number of poignant moments of the book. I mean, one was, of course, when you, against your better wish, you, were sh- you weren't sure if you wanted to look at your parents' letters to one another. Yeah, And like yeah. you both wanted to and you were relieved and also disappointed that nothing racy was in there. The yeah. Game, you talking about anything. Yeah, or I kind of, uh, I sort of partly wanted to, but um, there wasn't really much that I, that was there. This is my parents wrote each other letters during World War II, sometimes a couple of letters a day, you know, because I think there were like more than one mail delivery in a day. You know, I think there was a morning delivery and a, maybe a, an afternoon delivery. And, and your father was, and my father was serving. Yes, in the yes, Navy. he was a censor uh, because um, in the Seabees, actually in the Navy, uh, and he was a lot older than most of the people who were drafted. They called him the professor because he wore glasses, but he was made a censor because he spoke uh, English, French, Spanish, Italian, some German, um, Yiddish, of course. Uh, um, and yeah, he could sort of make his way through a lot of languages and, you know, they didn't want to give up their location and stuff like that. So he read everybody's letters pretty much and blacked out what was supposed to be, wow. you know, took out what was dangerous. But one of the most, also the second, I think for me, maybe the most appointment was when you actually tried to have a conversation a little bit late in the yeah. story with your mom asking her kind of wishing that she had been, she'd always said that she was your mother, not your friend. You know, I'm yeah. not your friend, I'm your mother. I'm not your friend, I'm your mother. And then yeah. you spoke to her at the end and asked her oh, was, if she regretted that. Yeah, that was um, that was actually, I mean, it's sort of one of those things which is like partly it's so, it's so funny and partly it's so horrible. It's like these two things coexisting um, where I think that my... Uh, my imaginings of what a deathbed scene were were like pretty much like from television and from movies and from books where, you know, a parent and a child have some sort of, uh, you know, rapprochement or meeting of the minds, you know, and it's, and it's just this wonderful sort of, you know, cathartic. cathartic kind of, and like there's tears and, you know, embracing and stuff like that. And so finally I get up the nerve to say to my mother, um, and this was before she had stopped speaking, and you know, to get up the nerve to say to her, um, I wish that we had been closer when, um, when I was growing up. Because I have children of my own, and it's those are like the most precious and most important relationships to me of my life. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I felt bad that like we had missed this thing and I wanted to express that to her, like that I was sad. And, and she, um, I, so I said that to her and her response, like I said, I wish that we had been closer. And her response was not me too. Her response was like, does it bother you? (laughs) And I was so sort of like, wait a minute. 
are, are we reading from the same script? Because, like, you know, didn't you look at the script before I kind con- you know, you knew what... And, uh, and that's not your line. And, um, <laughs> and I said, I was so surprised. I said, no, even though, yeah. And I said, does it, does it bother you? And she just said, mm-mm. <laughs> she just shook her head. She, I don't think she went, mm-mm. She just shook her head. And, uh, but then he went out. Then, yeah. Then I said, uh, should I stay or should I go? And she said, it doesn't matter. And, uh, then I left, and then I sort of like had like a kind of mini nervous breakdown, and then uh, he went into the car and he started. Bawling. Yeah, I was like screaming. I mean, it was just like I can't believe this. You know, here I'm like trying, and uh, but you know that that's the truth of it is that not this this scene is it, it happens um, in fiction, but I think that's the thing about all of this stuff that happened at the end of my parents' lives. There's really not, there was not much that I had read about that reflected what I was experiencing and like the, the minutia of it, the sort of like suddenly you're shopping in these aisles of CVS that you've never like been in before. You don't even know what half of these products are, you know, um, and I think that. Completely unprepared. Yeah, I was totally unprepared. unprepared. Oh, yeah, yeah, Completely. So one, one of the themes, one of the tropes in your book and also, I guess, in your work, I mean, my experience with your work, and I think all of us here are so uh, such big fans of your work, is that you you say the thing that many people think, right? That's one of the great things about your, <laughs> what, what makes people laugh so hysterically is like, we can imagine, as often we can imagine the things that you put together, but things that you often will say what's, what's hidden in a way within the recess of someone's mind and actually bring it to the light and say, oh, that's humorous like you know that you might be thinking how beautiful the the view is from the airplane and, and terrified at the same time and then thinking about you're getting peanuts you know yeah a- and yeah. you bring all those together in a way that's kind of breaks a taboo like you can have all of those right you're, you're sitting in and you're working with your your parents estate and their dwindling estate financially yeah and you're and you're and you're naming all of the thoughts that might go through someone's mind you know yeah, all of yeah. them yeah so it's, it's, so my question is is in the work of what matters and the question and, the, and reimagining end of life and this work that's is, is such important work, um, you know, how might it have been different if you had imagined the script? You just said you had a script. You know, what would the conversations have been like when you were in your 20s or 30s when, you know, when your parents would sit down and say the bank, all that stuff that your dad was worried about, about the banks, you discovered that they had deposited money in, in all of these banks because they would get blenders Right, you know, for yeah. free blenders, and and the banks are no longer even existed. Yes, right. Yes, and, and they were they, getting a check for like fifty eight dollars, and they never even cents. used the blenders. That's <laughs> right. the, that's the horrible part. I discovered these like boxed up blenders and irons, like because you know they didn't want to break out the new blenders. So we had this like osterizer from like the Cro Magnon era. You know, <laughs> I mean, it in was, the crazy closet. In the cra- it, yeah, there was all all these things were piled up in the crazy closet. It was just unbelievable. So what kind of conversations? You said you don't have conversations with your kids, but like, like w- run us through a scenario. Your parents would have sat you down. I mean, would that even have happened at all? Or should it, you know, what? It's so, it's so hard to imagine because we didn't have any of the conversations that would have led up to it. We didn't talk about like, you know, what mood we were in or, you know, um, your inner life. Yeah, yeah, it just did not, it just was not part of my childhood or adolescence with them. I mean, I remember like trying to, you know, express something to my mother like about feeling depressed and she would go, trauma time, you know, because yeah, I mean, that was. (laughs) Trauma time? (laughs) Yeah, trauma time. That was one of her, you know, she would just kind of ring out with this like, you know, you think you've got problems kind of phrase it was just uh <laughs> I mean it is kind of funny you know I mean it was not funny at the time but um you know hey where where is the New Yorker going to get cartoonists except from people that have had like miserable childhoods well I was going to say like, so, <laughs> exactly. you know, um, <laughs> so, much, <laughs> so much of your art is drawing from that pain right so the, yeah so so in terms of taboo so one of the things that I, growing up in a family where, where we also didn't talk about death, and not only did we not talk about yeah. death, like I, um, I think that humor around death, 
right? Like yeah. joking around, even like the sense of, are we allowed to laugh about these things? We're seeing images of you carrying the cremains on the subway is somehow in the Jewish world, slightly sacrilegious to kind of involve. But why? Right. Good question. Why? So do you think that if, um, yeah, w- why do you think? I why? don't, I mean, I don't, I did not find, I didn't carry them on the subway in any way to be sacrilegious. I felt like they rode the subway and um, <laughs> and I love the subway and it seemed like very, like, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, in a way, even the whole book, I felt like writing a kind of hallmarky kind of card version would have been very sacrilegious to mm, me to mm, like mm. to uh, lie about it. To lie about it. To hide behind the sentiment. Yeah, yeah, that would be terrible to me. I, well, I wouldn't do it. I would think I. I think I would do another project. But um, uh, you know, I also. I mean, I wanted. I wanted to remember them, you know, and I wanted to remember what the kind of weird conversations and arguments they had sometimes. Like, I, I didn't show the slide. There's one, you know, I still remember visiting them. At, they were in this uh, assisted living place near me and, you know, bringing them a cheese Danish and them having this entire, like, absurd argument over whether my father was going to eat a quarter of the Danish or not. And it was just, it went on and on and on. And it was so crazy. But, like, if I hadn't written it down, I, I would for, would have forgotten it, you know. So I wanted to remember you know, as a rabbi, I was touched by a number, an, another moment, which is that, um, you know, you, you make mention or you allude to these weird occurrences. The one that we just saw with the 2J and the J2. Yeah. And another time in, in your book, you come home after having been, right, yeah. visiting your parents yeah. and you decide to go up and your, your, your kids are, you know, it's one in the morning. What are they still up? You know, and yeah, you walk in yeah. and they're playing with a Ouija board. Yeah. And can you tell, tell us about that? Yeah. And, I mean, and this, what does it mean for you? I, I. I still don't know what the meaning of, of this is. I mean, I hadn't, you know, played with a Ouija board since I was, I don't know, 14 or 15 myself. And my daughter was 16 and she was in her room with some friends, like three or four friends, and they had the lights out and they were doing Ouija board. And I don't know why I was letting them stay up so late. You know, it was just, you know, anyway, um, they were all in her room and, um, and she says, mom, mom, come in and do the Ouija board with us. So um, I thought, oh, okay. Um, and I was just so curious to see what the kids would, cause I'm, you know, still thinking like, oh, this is all BS and, you know, people move it like, uh, you know, unconsciously or subconsciously or something. And so I was like really not even hardly touching it. I mean, just barely, cause I wanted to see what the kids would do. And, um, I asked a question like, um, Something like, um, what, what's, uh, what is, is grand, is grandpa going to die soon? And cause my father was, he was, you know, in the waning, I think he was a couple of weeks away from his death and he was really, you know, that's all I was thinking about at that time. And, um, and my daughter said, oh mom, that's like such a morbid question. And I said, well, you know, uh, it's the first thing that popped into my head. So I'm just going to ask it. And it started moving, you know, the little planchette thing, and it starts spelling stuff out. And it's, uh, I'll tell it in short. I mean, it spelled out heaven beckons. And I still have no idea where that came from. Um, I know I was not moving it because I was trying to figure out what it was going to say. I thought it was going to say heavy question, you know. Um, and uh and then when it spelled out heaven, I was like, huh, what? And, uh, and then it wasn't done. And um, it paused a little bit, and then it spelled out Beck. And, and then actually at one point I thought heaven Beck, and I was thinking like Beck the singer. Um, so I really had no idea right. um, which way it was going to go. And um, I don't know. It's funny. Do you, talk, do you talk to your parents? Um, yes. I, I do. Uh, but not very often. I, th- I thank them. I thank them. The, in, on the, you actually direct gratitude? Um, I sometimes, well, this is kind of a weird thing, but um, I, I moved out of the city um, when I had my, when we had our second kid. 
And uh, I'd missed the city so much. You know, as I said backstage, um, the first time I ever felt like I was maybe a real person was when I was 23 and I moved into my apartment in uh, on the Upper West Side. And, uh, and this counts college, too. Um, I think it had a lot to do with starting to earn my own money and actually being separate from my parents. And, um, and so I feel like in many ways this is where I really started to be a real person and um, not like a ghost or something. Um, and uh, um, I, when I moved out of the city, uh, you know, it was a great place to bring up kids, but I always wanted to move back here. And I feel like in some roundabout way, um, my parents, because this book, you know, for me as a cartoonist has, you know, been relatively successful, it enabled me to get this little tiny studio apartment on the Upper West Side. And um, it's just this little rental thing, but, you know, I'm, I, now I feel, and whenever I'm there, I thank them because I feel like they, mm. you know, they, they wanted to give it to me. I know they did. I mean, my, my mother, I didn't include her real estate stories at the end, which, you know, that was in the same part with, the, you know, the baby in the bag. You know, she had a whole string of stories of, you know, the Board of Education had some 10-room apartment on uh, Lexington and, oh, it's, 550 Park. 550 Park, yes. Um, and then there were other things that were like, you know, the, the intersection of Broadway and Lexington, like some, you know, crazy sort of, you know, dreamlike configurations of streets. Um, so I, on some level, she wanted to, she knew how much I wanted to move back to the city and how much it was like home for me. So when when I'm in my apartment, I think about them and I, and I feel like in a roundabout way, they gave me the apartment. Mm. So... Yeah. Anyway, so yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, I want to use my rabbinic prerogative here at the end here to give over a little a little tour about your name, okay, and about one of the slides. So I have no is is Roz from, Ra, from Rosalind Rosalind, but the word Roz as soon as I you know your name is in Hebrew the word Roz means secret, really or mystery. Interesting. And I heard a Torah, I heard a teaching once from, from a dear friend of mine who said that sometimes you read, you know, you can read a Hebrew word in both directions. So Raz in the other direction would be Zar. So it's R-A-Z, it would be Z-A-R. And in the other direction, it's foreign. And this amazing question that came, the last question of the evening was about coming into a foreign place or coming into a place of that you don't know the rules, whatever it is, and to find a mystery there. And I think that in some ways... You know, what you do through your artwork is that you invite people into uh, disclosing and seeing things that might otherwise be hidden in a way and find humor in it and, and find permission to laugh at something that might otherwise not be spoken about and also to break a taboo and to make that which is like, you know, foreign, czar, make it into Raz, which is mystery. So I just wanted to add that that rock, just the last thing here, that rock that you said, the rocks that people put on graves. Yeah. Years ago at, at, a, at our synagogue's uh, Yom Kippur evening on Kol Nidre, we talked about it as death rehearsal day. And we gave out rocks to people and we said, you know, here's a rock. And like you said, it's a tradition not to give out flowers, not to put flowers on a yeah. grave, but put rocks. And the, the origin of that tradition is that they didn't know where to mark a grave. And so they would put, if someone came to visit a grave, they would put a stone and then someone would know someone had been there to visit. Oh. So it's become a very important part of our tradition. And I think that tonight was a kind of rock, as it were on this yeah. entire last couple of days. Like, there was humor, but it was, it was humor from a place of honesty and transparency. It was humor from a place of, let's look at this squarely in the face and see what it is. And it's humor that, as a rock, is a memento. It's a reminder that we need to revisit these places often, as often as possible, so that we become somewhat more familiar. It's not so czar, so outside. It becomes more infused with questions like you added, mystery, what is this? Let's ask the question together. And so I want to thank you, Raz, for tonight. And on behalf of everybody, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That's really interesting. That was Roz Chast talking to Rabbi David Engber. Our podcasts are produced by Megan Whitman and me, Eric Winnick. Our editor is Matt Temkin. Our music was written and performed by Peril Wolf. 
The voice of Zabars is Leah Rosensweet. To learn more about What Matters, caring conversations about end of life, visit whatmattersny.org. For more information on Reimagine, visit letsreimagine.org. Please give us a rating and review on iTunes, and if you can, share this episode with your friends. If you're just joining us, welcome, and be sure to subscribe for future episodes.